truly the Lord of heaven and earth. Who, as the Apostle Paul will say to the Athenians, just a couple of chapters from the passage we're going to look at today, God has commanded all people everywhere to repent, and he's given proof of this by raising a man from the dead. So the advance of this gospel message to Rome, the capital of the ancient world, it's highly significant. But as the book of Acts tells this story, one of the things we encounter again and again are stories of disagreement among these early Christians. And, you know, it might seem strange to say this, but I, I think we should take some comfort from that because I think it's God's way of saying that disagreement has always been a feature of church life. It's never good, but it's always been there, right from the very beginning. And in one sense, you know, we're a redeemed bunch of sinners, aren't we? A motley crew... In one sense, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised if disagreement continues to be part of our life, however disappointing, discouraging and distressing it can sometimes be. But the other thing it does, I think, and this is even more significant, is it gives us some wisdom to know how to navigate different kinds of disagreement. Because, as we'll see in this passage today, not all disagreements are the same. Not all disagreements are of the same magnitude. And where one thing might demand really quite a decisive and firm response, another thing might call for a measure of restraint or um, even compromise. And surely that's the kind of wisdom we need, isn't it? Disagreements are inevitable. What is or isn't worth fighting about? And how should we go about engaging with those with whom we disagree? So let's look at the first, at the issue that's right at the heart of this chapter in Acts 15. You'll see in verse 1 that Luke tells us that some people had come from Judea, that's a, a Jewish, the Jewish province in, in Roman Palestine, and they travelled up to Antioch in the north, a city that's now in modern-day Turkey, and they were saying... If you want to be saved, if you want to be a real, authentic Christian, you've got to be circumcised. Ouch. What's going on here? Well, if you follow the story of the Gospel's progress in Acts, up to this point you will have seen how the Gospel has moved from that very first public announcement of the Gospel by the Apostle Peter, who stood up in Jerusalem on that first day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit was poured out dramatically from on high to the point now where like a river that's burst its banks, we've seen a lot of that lately haven't we, the gospel message of God's grace has overflown from the banks of Jerusalem to the surrounding Judean countryside and then if it couldn't be contained there it's overflowed into Samaria, a a region of half-castes, of ethnic mongrels, part Jewish, part not Jew, part Gentile, and despised by the Jews themselves, and, and now has burst the banks of Samaria and has reached the pagan Gentile world. The Apostle Paul, he's gone out on his first missionary journey, preaching the gospel um, up through modern-day Turkey, 
And now thousands of pagan Gentiles have come to confess the name of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to be their Saviour and Lord. And praise the Lord that the gospel reached the Gentile world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. That this was a very significant thing in the life and the history of God's people. It's easy for us to underestimate the radical upheaval that it, it would have meant, particularly for the Jewish first Jewish converts in the first century. Because you remember, the Jews under the old covenant, they were bound by the law of Moses and, and therefore they, they were bound by all kinds of elaborate regulations concerning lots of things, food, uh, other things that stipulated what was and what wasn't clean, even down to the sort of clothes that you could wear. Uh, it was an elaborate system of rituals like the rite of circumcision, rituals that would cleanse and purify them and deliberately mark them out from all the pagan nations around them as God's special holy people. So much so that it was a sin even to enter a Gentile home, let alone sit down and have a meal with them. And so this moment... It's a very dramatic moment in the life of God's people, so much so that many of the first Jewish converts, they, 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 even after they became Christians, they continued to keep some of the old Jewish customs and perhaps would only eat the kosher food and, and, and would continue to go to the temple and so on. So maybe you can see just how this might have caused some friction in the early days of the church. In fact, some Jewish Christians were so clearly so shocked and outraged that these new Gentile converts who had come to faith in Jesus were not keeping all the law of Moses, that they weren't eating the kosher food, that they hadn't been circumcised, that what they did is they sent this unofficial delegation from Judea to the church in Antioch, we're told. And they said, unless you are circumcised, well, you cannot be saved. In other words, it's, it's not enough that you believe in Jesus to be saved. You've got to add something. You have to keep the Jewish law. See, clearly it's not an academic, just an academic issue. It's a matter of heaven and hell, they're saying. It's a person's salvation is at stake. Now, we, we know that this issue was a significant point of tension in the early church, not just from what's going on here in Acts, but from other parts of the New Testament as well. So, most famously, exactly the same issue comes up in the book of Galatians, for instance. And as in Galatians, we see here in verse 2 that the Apostle Paul simply won't have a bar of it. In Galatians, Paul actually tells us that even Barnabas wobbled on the matter because he was afraid of the Jews, as did the Apostle Peter. But here it seems that Paul and Barnabas are totally on the same page. And so at this point, the church in Antioch decides to send Paul and Barnabas, along with some other believers, down to Jerusalem to settle the matter with the apostles and the elders. It's not that... Paul somehow needed the rubber stamp of the Jewish church, the Jerusalem church. To his mind, the matter was settled. And he was an apostle just like the rest of them. 
Rather, I, I take it, I think, that the issue was so significant in Paul's eyes that he felt it was absolutely vital for the whole church to be united on this issue at this early stage. And so they, they go to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, and then we're told, verse 5, that some believers who belonged to the, circum the, the party of the Pharisees got up and they repeated the claim once again. The Gentiles must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so in verse 6, the apostle and elders, they decide to call a meeting. And it's a very significant meeting. It's sometimes called the Jerusalem Council. Uh, there had never been one quite like it. And there have been a number of church councils, many church councils since. But in some ways, this is the first significant one. And it's there already in the book of Acts for us. What's striking for us, I think, is, is how they go about resolving the issue. So if that's the issue that's given rise to the council in the first place, what is it that they actually decide? Well, in amidst such discussion, Luke tells us that there were three main speeches, one from Peter, one from Paul and Barnabas, and then one from James. And what I think is really noteworthy about each of these speeches is that the whole purpose of this council was clearly to seek the mind of God on the matter. They weren't interested in personal preferences or their own sort of traditions. They weren't interested in pleasing their non-Jewish, non-Christian Jewish neighbours or keeping in line with the surrounding culture. No, all that matters as far as they're concerned is what God thinks. So first, Peter. Peter draws attention to God's actions. Verse 7, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, you may have actually looked at this incident that Peter's referring to here in your series through Acts, but he's referring to an incident back in chapter 10 when an angel of God appeared to the Roman centurion Cornelius and tells him to go looking for this man called Peter. And Peter, who otherwise doesn't really want to talk to a Gentile, is given this dramatic vision and was sent by God to preach the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius and his whole household we're told they believed and they received the Holy Spirit and so from that moment on Peter knows as he says here verse 8 that God makes no distinction but accepts Jews and Gentiles in exactly the same way through faith in Jesus. Notice verse 9 Peter says God who knows the heart purifies it by faith. There was a time when keeping the Jewish law with all of its external regulations and washings and rituals like circumcision had a place, but no longer, Peter says. The only thing that matters now is what happens on the inside, in the heart. And in the eyes of the only one who matters, in God's eyes, all that matters is faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you're circumcised or not, no matter our race, no matter what we eat, 
no matter how dirty we might look on the outside, no matter how dirty we might feel on the inside, whether rich or poor, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the only one who matters, in the eyes of the only one who knows everything that we've ever done or thought or said, we are clean, thoroughly purified in his sight from the moment we trust in Christ. And Peter says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles, verse 10, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Jesus, remember, the one who said to the weary and burdened, come to me and you will find rest. Instead of a yoke that burdens, you see, and let's face it, Peter says, the law is a burdensome yoke. All of its washings and regulations and rituals can never really get into the filth that's inside all of our hearts, and so they had to be repeated again and again and again. It's a burdensome yoke, you see. But instead of all of that, Jesus says, take my yoke on you upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light because I carried the burden for you and fulfilled the law and all of its righteous and holy requirements in your place take my yoke no Peter says we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are just as anyone is Grace. I wonder how you'd explain grace. Someone put it like this. Grace means that we're in, when we're in the middle of a struggle, the referee blows the whistle and announces the game. We are declared winners and sent to the showers. It's over for all puffing, puffing piety to earn God's favour. It's finished for all sweat-soaked straining it to secure self-worth it's the end of all competitive scrambling to get ahead of others in the game grace means that God is on our side and thus we are victors regardless of how we have played the game that relentless hopeless treadmill of self-justification in the face of voices everywhere screaming that we fall short of the mark the youthful vigour and vitality of our sporting heroes, the sexualised glamour of the fashion industry, the material security and comfort of our neighbours, maybe even the voice of our own consciences with its nagging reminders of failures and regrets and embarrassments, if not any of those things, certainly the condemning sentence of God's law. Jesus has blown the whistle on all that. What's grace? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the wonderful arithmetic of God's grace. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Peter says, and, and this is why so much was at stake in this particular agreement, a disagreement. Peter says, Jesus plus anything Anything at all, no matter how well-intentioned, 
No matter how outwardly virtuous, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's to burden us with a yoke we cannot bear. Now that's Peter. He sits down. Now verse 12, Paul and Barnabas get up and they talk about God's actions. All the signs and wonders that God had done through them. They're talking about their first missionary journey that they've just finished as the gospel was proclaimed through the Gentile region, Asia Minor, accompanied with great signs and wonders, testifying to the truth of what they were proclaiming. And then finally, it's James's turn, verse 13, and James goes to the scriptures, to the prophets in particular, verses 16 to 18, who predicted that one day God was going to restore the Davidic kingdom. And the sign of that restoration would not simply be the return of God's people to a rebuilt and re-inhabited Jerusalem, but verse 17, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. And that, of course, is exactly what we begin to see in the book of Acts and exactly what we've been seeing throughout the world ever since. It's no innovation It's what the Hebrew scriptures had always promised and predicted long ago. And so James concludes, verse 19, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the mind of God has been sought by this council and the matter is resolved and the full sufficiency of what Christ has achieved for our salvation is publicly upheld and affirmed. Or is it? See, before they send Paul and Barnabas on their way with some delegates who will deliver the written decision of the council, that's what happens in verses 22 to 35, just before James sits down in verse 20, he says something. And I don't know whether you noticed this as it was read out. He says something, makes this just little qualification that at first glance you might might be forgiven for thinking more or less undoes just about everything that has, been, that has just been said. He, he, did you sort of scratch your head as it was read out? He says, when we write to these Gentile Christians and tell them that Jesus has done it all and all you need to do is trust in him, just make a little point of telling them that they have to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Isn't that just another way of saying, oh, yes, yes, believe in Jesus, but make sure you keep all of the Jewish law. Stay away from idols, stay away from certain foods, stay away from blood. But look, James isn't stupid, and nor has he made a mistake. I think most likely this little list here is a collection of practices, including the mention of sexual immorality, that were specifically in the the early first century Gentile world, were specifically associated with the pagan temple and its rituals. Temple prostitution uh, and all sorts of weird and wonderful practices that would go on in the pagan temple. There's there's actually good evidence for that. Um, And so in all likelihood, I think James's main point is simply this. 
if the Jewish Christians have been called away from an old, elaborate, albeit God-ordained system of rituals to the simplicity of gospel worship and the purity of faith in Christ, well, how much more are the Gentile Christians called to abandon this God-forsaken abominations, these abominations of pagan ritual to the same purity of gospel worship and faith in Christ. That's not to add to the gospel. To turn away from an old way of life, to repent of immorality and practices that defile our consciences, that's merely the flip side of turning to Christ and putting our trust in him. And that's what we're called to do, Jew and Gentile alike, even today. So I think that's, I think that's most likely what is going on. But there may also be a, a principle of Christian fellowship that's guiding James's instruction here. I mean, leaving aside sexual immorality in this list, which of course is always wrong, elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that all foods are clean. That means that even food that has been sacrificed to an idol, let alone the blood sausage, I mean, I'm actually quite partial to black pudding, I don't know about you, but Jesus says it's all fine in principle for a Christian to eat. Because what we eat, you see, has nothing to do with the purity of our hearts which comes by faith in Jesus. But, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, the first in 1 Corinthians, sometimes we should refrain from exercising our rights as Christians for the sake of other Christians who might find our behaviour offensive or confronting. And Paul himself actually specifically mentions eating food sacrificed to idols, which otherwise is neither here nor there. Would a Jewish Christian in the early church have found that confronting and offensive and the sort of things that James men mentions here? Quite probably yes. And so Paul says, for the sake of our fellowship, it's best not to, even if he might otherwise have the right to. Maybe a, um, a contemporary example might be just refraining from drinking alcohol among Christians who have converted from an Islamic background. Who, because of their background, their religious background, they're, they're no longer Muslims, they're now Christians, but because of their background, they might find the consumption of alcohol still a challenging thing. Well, if that's the case, it's best not to drink alcohol. It's the loving thing to do for the sake of our fellowship. That's not to compromise on the freedom that the gospel brings. I mean, of course, if someone actually comes up and says, you can't be a Christian unless you stop eating certain foods or stop drinking alcohol, well, that's a different matter because that is then, well, doing what is going on in the council, adding something to the gospel. And therefore, in that case, the integrity of the gospel is at stake. But if it's just the case that some Christians might find some practices and behaviours difficult or offensive, then we should do all we can to minimise the offence. In fact, in just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 16, after Paul has set out on his second missionary journey, 
he takes his young protege, Timothy, with him, and you'll notice if you look ahead to verse 3, he circumcises Timothy because of the Jews in the area that they would be travelling. Now, clearly, James, like James, Paul isn't so stupid or cowardly to backtrack on everything he stood for at the council. Now, I take it that he is simply, in this case, seeking to minimise any source of offence. And so, Timothy freely is circumcised. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible, he says to the Corinthians. To those under the law I became like those under the law, though myself I am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some, he says. And yet, without any compromise to the integrity of the gospel itself. And I think as we close... The fact that the council, the fact that Paul was willing to make certain concessions, well, like the circumcision of Timothy, like urging people to refrain from eating certain foods in certain company, so as to minimise the likelihood of unnecessary offence, that fact alone, I think, should alert us to the critical importance of preserving Christian fellowship as much as possible wherever a difference of perspective or preference might arise among believers in the church. There's a vital place for toleration, even concession, even compromise, putting aside personal preference to preserve the fellowship. A wise piece of advice I received as a young minister, for instance, is never pick a fight with the musicians. I can say this because I'm a musician myself and I know that it's just not worth it. You want to divide a, you want to divide a church? Pick a fight about music. I mean, I, look, speaking for myself, I've long since given up expecting to enjoy the style of music at my church. But I'm not... It's just me, I know. I'm, I'm not going to make a fuss about it because... And you might feel the same. You might feel the same one week. Oh, I really... Don't make a fuss about it because the fellowship is too precious. Of course, sometimes disagreement does happen. But in the vast majority of cases, it needn't and shouldn't split a church. And it's a tragedy when it does. In fact, in the very next section after the council, we did have this bit read out. You remember Luke actually records in verse 36 to 41 another sharp disagreement, this time between Paul and Barnabas over the suitability of John Mark uh, to accompany them on their second missionary journey. In Paul's mind, John Mark, well, he was a quitter and so he didn't think it was a good idea to take him on the second uh, this time. uh, But but Barnabas said, no, 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 we need to take him. They disagreed. And it was a sharp disagreement, we're told. And it did involve a parting of ways. But notice in that instance, there was no call for a council. 
There, there was no suggestion of any schism or split within the church in Antioch where they went from. And there's actually every reason to believe from elsewhere in Paul's writings that their fellowship as Christian brothers, Paul and Barnabas, remained utterly intact. And that's a good lesson for us, I think. But sometimes, and hopefully only very rarely, what we see from the council in Jerusalem is that where the integrity of the gospel is at stake, or where a person's salvation is at stake, according to the mind and will of God, a courageous and costly stand like that which is modelled for us in this council is necessary. So I take it, for instance, that the very public uh, disagreement and fracture that is more or less occurring as we speak within the wider Anglican church in Australia and globally over the nature of marriage I take it is necessary. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God is deeply interested in our sexual behaviour. That it's not just simply a case of anything goes in the name of love. God is so interested in it that it can be a matter of heaven and hell. And therefore, there needs to be a public stand. Painful, costly unpleasant in so many ways though it may be well that's the kind of wisdom we need there's the Jerusalem council let's pray then that the Lord would give us give our leaders that wisdom that grace that discernment that we will need as we confront differences of opinion disagreements differences of preference differences in doctrine in church life. We need the Lord's wisdom, don't we? Our Father, we uh, thank you for this chapter that you have given us the, and these events that you orchestrated where you model before us uh, what it means to make a decisive decision and why it is necessary when the gospel is at stake. Father, we are conscious of the fact that even though these sorts of decisions and confrontations may only be rare, nonetheless, sometimes they will be necessary. And Father, we need courage ourselves and particularly our leaders need courage to make the sort of stands that are informed by your will as you have given us your instruction in your word when a person's salvation is at stake, when the gospel is at stake. But Father, we also see in this chapter the, the importance of preserving Christian fellowship and the importance of flexibility and toleration and laying aside our own preferences and acting out of concern and love for those who find things challenging and difficult and acting with grace and charity and patience not standing on our own rights. And Father, we need that grace too. We pray, Father, that that would be something that um, that wisdom and grace would be applied even within this church with great discernment so that the preciousness of this, this fellowship and all our churches 
might be preserved as a testament to the unity that we enjoy as members of your body, the body of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray.